If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. We're going to read beginning in verse 33 and read down into chapter 11 through verse 11. Again, the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 33. If you'll remember uh, from uh, our uh, studies, Jesus uh, in really what amounted to his first sermon goes home and what goes to the synagogue and he reads a passage from the book of Isaiah, a, a prophetic word that says that he has arrived to preach the good news, to preach the gospel, which includes uh, both the message of freedom to those who are captives and healing to those who have various infirmities. And he says to them, that passage is fulfilled in him on that day. And so what Luke does for us in these following chapters is he shows how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the prophetic word pertaining to the coming Messiah. And so we see uh, that in our, our passage today. And we're going to see essentially two groups of people. And at the end of the day, there always are only two groups of people. While in Tanzania, I saw a lot of people that are essentially very different from me, uh, culturally and ethnically and so forth and so on. But at the end of the day, whether a United States citizen or a citizen of Tanzania or wherever you're from or whoever you are, there are ultimately only two types of people. Those who accept Jesus Christ and his message and his authority in their lives and those who reject it. And so again, we will see that today as we look at what Luke explains to us regarding uh, ongoing demonstration of Christ and his compassion and the continuing escalation of the conflict that will ultimately place him on the cross at Calvary. So again, Luke chapter 5 beginning in verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make, a, make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine, skin, new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will, be, will burst, and the skins, uh, burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave to those with him. 
And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him was, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we thank you for your word, the testimony to your son and his gospel. And Lord, we pray that today your spirit uh, that gave these words to Luke so long ago would be at work uh, among us, uh, giving us understanding, uh, again, that it may be good news to us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would just take it and apply it uh, to our hearts, again, so that we may live in a way that's pleasing to you. And again, ultimately, uh, for our own good. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've referred a number of times as we've made our march uh, through uh, this particular gospel that Luke begins by telling Theophilus he wants to give him an orderly account, that there are a number of accounts that have circulated. There's a lot of things being said about Jesus Christ. There's even things being written about Jesus Christ. But he has set about the business of getting all of the facts and uh, accumulating and then integrating them into what would be uh, his gospel, the first of two volumes. Uh, he would later write the sequel, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or as people often say, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke wants us to see, as the other gospel writers want us to see, that this Jesus is truly and uniquely the Son of God, that he is the Son of David, that he is the Savior of the world and all of those things in a, in a unique one-of-a-kind only Jesus type of way uh, one of the things one of the privileges I had in Africa was teaching these pastors and again my assignment was to teach from uh, on church history which is not exactly in my wheelhouse so I had a lot of panic and a lot of preparation uh, to do to get ready uh, for that but my goal was not that they remember all the names and dates, which I can't even remember all the names and dates, but that they would see that so much of where we err, even today, in terms of theology and doctrine, has really been sorted out and resolved many hundreds of years ago uh, by the body, the, the church, meeting, discussing, and then stating something in the form of a creed that says this is what the Bible teaches about this particular subject. You do not have to wonder about who Jesus is. You do not have to wonder about the nature of the Trinity. You don't have to worry about the nature of salvation because it has been stated very clearly so we can understand it. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you come to church. Okay, And so all of that was very good uh, you know, for me and for them as all of the modern heresies are alive and well in Tanzania. And so those, those guys are very busy over there fleecing people. I, we sat at the airport uh, for all of eternity, I think, uh, 
Uh, I know I will go to heaven. I have been to hell. Uh, it's airports in Tanzania. But um, so y'all better behave because that's where you're going to be sent one day, okay? Kidding. But um, one of the things that kept repeating itself on that television, which was obviously in Swahili, was some preacher I'd never heard of, but he was slaying people in the spirit, and they were slobbering and falling all over the place and so forth and so on. And, in fact, there was one of those churches right around the corner from Rejoice's church. And so, uh, you know, like I say, it's everywhere. And so it's, it's very dangerous and it's very destructive, ultimately, uh, to one's faith. So Jesus comes and through his word and through his works that demonstrated authority and power, uh, he leaves a witness that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is exactly who the Gospels say he is and who he says that he is, okay? And there were those that believed that message then and those that rejected it, and still today, 2,000 years later, there are those that believe that message and accept it, and there are those that reject it. Uh, while I think that for the most part, normatively speaking within the confines of the church that things such as raising the dead and, and healing such as we see here today in Jesus case or if we were studying the, the work of the apostles the things that the apostles did typically belong uh, to another age another day I, I, I wish I could raise the dead I, I wish I could heal you of your infirmities uh, but I can't and uh, likely uh, I will not be invested are vested with that type of power. But the power of God to work in people's heart and to save them from their sins is always present where the gospel is being preached. In fact, we got an interesting discussion, and it really kind of honed in when, when Jesus said, greater works than these shall you do, okay? A lot of people think that means I get a bigger jet or a newer Rolls Royce or, you know, get another house on the beach or whatever, you know, it is that these yahoos are after. But what is the greatest work of God that has been occurring for 2,000 years? What is the most dynamic thing that he does? Is take a person who's dead in trespasses and sin and give them the sight to see and the heart to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. That he could take my unbelieving heart, my heart of stone, and put into me a heart of flesh and trans transform me into somebody who was hostile to God, even as nice a kid as I was and well-behaved as I was. Never, you know, I mean, my parents didn't even think I had a sin nature. You know? Forget it. So... But God, did a, I think that's the greatest, I, I think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind, is the gospel will go forth, and this small group, which is like a mustard seed, is, is representative of the kingdom, and it shall become the greatest of all. Through what? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed to the nations, and the Spirit of God going with those who preach it, and working in people's hearts to raise them from their spiritual death and to give to them spiritual life, forgiveness of sins, and the hope of eternal life. And so 
Jesus Christ is engaged in his work. He's very early in his ministry here on earth. He's still in that region around the Sea of Galilee. And we really continue because it seems to me that where we jump into our text today is a continuation of what we looked at when I was here previously. And you remember I kind of called that Matthew's party. That is, Jesus calls Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, to come and to follow after him, and he does. And then Jesus follows after Matthew and goes to his house and enjoys a party, a dinner, with Matthew's associates, which are typically wicked people. And when the Pharisees observe this, their criticism of Jesus is that you're eating and drinking. In other words, the most obvious way that you say that I am in fellowship with you, particularly in the ancient world, was to have table fellowship with them. That's why the Lord's Supper is so important for the body of Christ. One of the reasons is we're saying we're in fellowship with one another and we're in fellowship with God. It's a proclamation of our, our unity and our fellowship with God. So to have a meal with somebody was to say, I accept them. And so Jesus is eating with these evil people, and the Pharisees are going nuts about this. And Jesus' response back there in verse 32 is, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. What is he saying? Church is not for good people. Church is for people who know they're bad. Right? Who know they're sinners and know there's a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. What is Jesus saying? He said, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous in their own right. I, I make people very uncomfortable sometimes when I begin to talk about sin. Imagine that. But here's the reality. If you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. The first thing that has to be proved to an individual before they can become a believer is to demonstrate that they're in unbelief, their state is that of unbelief, they're outside of the grace of God, they're lost and undone and they need a Savior. And so Jesus didn't come for those who think they don't need a Savior, who think by their own performance, their own good deeds or their lack of bad deeds that everything's going to go well with them when they stand before God. He didn't come to, co to call quote unquote righteous people. Now we know what does Paul, now again the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Paul says what? They're none righteous. No, not one. Okay, there's not a contradiction there. He's saying, I didn't come to call people who think they're righteous in their own right. I came to call those who are sinners and know they are and want a Savior. Okay? And so Jesus uh, continues. They question him. It's interesting in the parallel account in Matthew, this question seems to come from the Pharisees. But in Matthew's gospel, it seems as though the question comes from the disciples of John. Okay, it's kind of an interesting thing in terms of what we call the synoptic uh, gospels. But Jesus gets a question beginning with John's disciples fast, okay? And they do it often, and they, and they, they offer specific uh, prayers. And so do the, the, those that are of the Pharisees, the disciples uh, of the Pharisees. But yours are here eating and drinking. Now, if John the Baptist... In the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets was an ascetic. That is, he was one who chose to, and by God's own call on his life, to, to kind of live a life off, uh, away from people 
and a life of self-denial. That's not a bad thing, okay? That's, but, but Jesus is saying that time is past. What is present now is the time to eat and drink. And the analogy that he draws or the picture that he gives us is that of a wedding feast. If you go to a wedding, the idea is that you go to celebrate the wedding, the goodness of God in bringing two people together and so forth and so on. And so you don't come all gloomy-faced and all sad and so forth and so on um, and refuse to participate in the table fellowship, okay? And so Jesus makes the analogy of he being the bridegroom. Now, now the whole idea of Jesus as the groom and the church being the body of Christ is developed later in New Testament theology, okay? That's not really present so far in the gospel. So he's, he's being very nuanced and very veiled in what he is saying. The, the image of God's relationship to his people in the Old Testament is more what? Father, child, okay? Not so much bride and groom. But Jesus is comparing himself to the groom who is present, and when the groom is present, it's time of feasting, okay? And then when he is gone, then this is the appropriate time of fasting, which I believe he's also predictive there. He is saying something that there's going to be, a, I'm present with you now, the groom is present now, but there's going to be a day when the groom is taken from your presence. How is he taken from his, their presence? By means of the crucifixion. Okay? He was taken from their presence, and then ultimately he ascends uh, into heaven to rule and reign at the right hand of uh, the fathers. And so Jesus gives them a bit of an enigmatic, veiled answer uh, uh, there uh, when they quiz him uh, about that. And he makes an analogy, and then he kind of enhances and explains uh, himself there in verse 36 and gives them uh, two analogies, two illustrations, two parables in a sense. The first one related uh, to, to fabric and how uh, it, it, it would have been an everyday illustration people would have understood. Believe it or not, I get it. I've told you all before in a former life in a galaxy far, far away, I knew a little bit about sewing. Y'all didn't know that, did you? Uh, in fact, one of my uh, little pipe dreams as a young entrepreneur is that I would own a sewing plant to supply my vast uh, network of stores and sell that I sold curtains and bedspreads in. And so uh, I, I used contract sewers, though, uh, when I was doing all of that. No, ladies, I will not come measure your windows and tell you what size draperies you need. I repented of all of that, and so I no longer in, am involved in that business. But I know a little bit about fabric, okay? Don't give me a written test when you leave. But. So I understand the first thing is you've got an old ragged garment. Well, you don't go cut up a new one to patent out. I know, I know, you've got that fa favorite pair of blue jeans that you've worn since sixth grade, okay? And they don't fit any better now than they did then. No, just kidding. But, you know, you'd do anything to save those blue jeans. So I get it. But normatively speaking, you don't ruin a new garment to patch an old garment by putting, cutting a piece of fabric out of it. And then you've got the problem of the old fabric already having shrunk 
and the new fabric not being shrunk. And so when it's sewn together, what happens? When the new fabric begins to to shrink, those seams are going to be pulled at and stretched. Okay, so you've just got a mess. See, y'all didn't know I knew all that, did you? So, that, that's why you don't do that. Now, plus the color doesn't match and every you know, so I could talk to you about dye lots and all. See, I, I know all that stuff. So, at any rate, it won't work. Then he gives a second analogy to enhance his explanation there, and it has to do with wine skins. Now, let me be very, 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 very clear, just in case any of you are in doubt. I did not buy any of that wine that I had my picture made with in the book Bible Bookstore in Tanzania, okay? I didn't buy any. It was a joke, all right? So Connie was very disappointed when I came in empty-handed this morning, and I didn't have uh, the good stuff with me, okay, uh, for our next communion service. But Jesus said that you don't take new wine and put it into an old wineskin couple of reasons. Number one, uh, like anything else, if you put a liquid into a container that's been used, it's going to take on some of the taste and flavoring of that old vessel. But the primary problem is, is when wine is stored in those wine skins and it goes through the fermentation process, that new wine skin is stretched, okay? And then uh, when they uncap it and drink it and so forth and so on, that wine skin has lost its elasticity. And so were you to refill it with new wine and then you let it ferment, what would happen? The wine skin would burst. And all the good stuff would be poured out and all God's people would be sad that their wine was mud versus in their glasses. Okay? So Jesus says that that, that will not work. Now what is his point? In the two analogies, what is he saying? That he is coming and he is inaugurating something new. An age that is entirely different from the old age. Now, point of theology. We often talk about what is the the continuity and the discontinuity in relationship with Old Covenant and New Covenant. Okay? Well, that, that still stands. But for what Jesus is saying, what he wants to communicate right here, is he is saying that there are things that are very different about the age to come and the message that is going to be proclaimed. Now, again, the message of the gospel from the fall of Adam until Jesus returned has always been salvation by God's grace through faith. Okay, remember that. Okay, always. Old covenant, new covenant, same message. But Jesus is saying there's something radically different that is unfolding in your midst. And unless there is a radical change in your attitude, you will never accept that which is new. And you, you can't mix the two. This is not a, uh, Christianity is not syncretistic. You can't take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and mix it up and have something that actually is true, okay? If you taint the message of the gospel with something that's not the gospel, you have distorted and perverted the gospel and you put people's lives in peril. And so at an individual level, I think he's very clearly saying something like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You have to be radically changed. But more importantly, I think he's saying that in this new age, 
the old must be done away with. The old way of thinking must be done away with, and there must be a new way of thinking in terms of what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. You must forget about the old rituals and all of the things associated with the old and embrace what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he also makes a very practical point there at the end in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. Not only do the girls all get prettier at closing time, but all the booze tastes better after a night of drinking. Okay? That is, you begin to lose your ability to discern what really tastes good and what doesn't really taste good. And so nobody that's been drinking for a while begins to think about what's really good and bad. They just want to drink, okay? And so Jesus is saying those that are immersed in the old way of thinking under the old covenant, the Pharisees, they're they're ensnared in this. And so they like the old. They're satisfied with the old. They're saying what? That old, that old wine, like a guy that's been drinking all evening, said the old is fine. I don't need anything new. And so he's saying how difficult it's going to be for these Pharisees, for the gospel to break through into their hearts and minds and to accept this message of the gospel from Jesus Christ and ultimately the apostles and then uh, the church. Okay? Historically, that's proven true. The majority of Jews to this day still reject Jesus Christ because what? I'm satisfied with the old wine. I'm satisfied with the old way of thinking. And so Jesus uses this analogy that, again, is not probably crystal clear to the Pharisees. Remember, as he reveals himself to the disciples and to the watching masses, he's very calculating in that, He's going to tell them so much in a certain way. Um, Jesus did not march into Jerusalem initially and just go, Hey, I'm it, guys. Suck it up. Let's go get the Romans. Let's get them out of here. Let's get this kingdom business going. Snap, snap, snap. But he really began his ministry. And again, I know John records one visit to Jerusalem, which he cleansed the temple. And that was a pretty loud of announcement who he was. But essentially, he goes off, begins in the kind of the backwoods, and then moves into Jerusalem in the latter part of his ministry. So he's still in the early days, but yet he has gotten the attention of the local Pharisees. And Luke tells us that even some of the Pharisees from Jerusalem have come and like, who is this guy? Who is what's what's he saying? And immediately they feel threatened. So he answers a question about fasting, and then he asks. Then he answers a question regarding uh, related to the Sabbath. Look at chapter six. Luke tells us what on a Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was a big deal, and just as a bit of a sideline, one of the questions that God's people have struggled with is the relationship of the Old Covenant Sabbath to the New Testament Sunday, Lord's Day. What's acceptable? I've told you some some of these stories before. Um, 
my parents, again, wonderful people, godly people, but trapped in a bit of legalism, in, in my opinion. Now, they're far, they were far better people than I'll ever be, but, but uh, I've told you before, uh, we didn't fish on Sunday. Now, for some reason, I could swim, go water skiing, uh, practice ball, uh, go wander around in the woods, build my dams in the creek. I could do whatever I wanted to as long as I didn't have a fishing rod. And uh, we would go down to our lake house uh, 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 on uh, Sunday before Labor Day, after church on Sunday night, and they would sit there and play cards. Imagine that. They played cards on Sunday, nonetheless. In fact, every Sunday night they play cards and smoke cigarettes, too. But that's another question for another day. But they're not my mother. My mother was a saint. But, um, but we could not go fishing until midnight. I kid you not. We could go swimming. We couldn't go fishing. And, uh, you know, I, my dad, we had on ponds on our property there in front of the house. People could fish in it. We come home from church one Sunday. The, the road up to the house goes right by the, the lake, the pond. And Daddy stops, says, hey, the pond is closed. We don't allow fishing on Sunday. And the guy got smart with him. My dad went to the house, got his shotgun, and went down and convinced the man the pond was closed on Sunday. True story. I, I, I promise you. You can call my brother up and ask him. But again, what is appropriate for Christians to do on Sunday? It's a good question. You ought to think about it. Y'all think about it. I, I'm not a Christian Sabbatarian, okay? But some people are. But we ought to be in the Lord's house worshiping the Lord at least for a portion of every Sunday, okay? That, that's what should happen. That should be the norm uh, within uh, our households. And, I, I, again, I don't want to impose any type of legalism on any, anybody, but I think it's a healthy practice for God's people to gather together for the worship of God on, on Sunday. And, again, uh, Beyond that, you know, you can study it for yourself and see what your, how, where your convictions fall. And so, on the Sabbath, he's going through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked some grain from the stalks that were alongside uh, the path. Now, evidently, the Pharisees, uh, they're in the bushes hiding to see what this Jesus fella and those yahoos that are hanging out with him, see what they're doing, okay? And so they indict them for doing what is not lawful. Now, what was not lawful about feeding yourself when you're hungry? Well, some would say, well, because it wasn't their grain. They stole it. No, no. The Old Testament law made a provision that you could actually pluck a little bit of grain from somebody's field uh, for a snack, so to speak. They didn't have uh, kangaroo stores or whatever to run in and get your Milky Way or your Snickers bar. And so uh, you could just uh, grab up some grain. What were they saying? What were they, what were they saying? They violated the prohibition on harvesting, on reaping on the Sabbath. Well, the truth is they didn't. Because what was prohibited was actually taking a sickle and harvesting on the Sabbath, not what they were doing. But here's the thing that happened, and the same thing happens in churches for, for 2,000 years. The Pharisees had come up with an extensive set of policies related as to how you should behave 
on the Sabbath. I, I've got to read this to you. you you're going to love it. This is from John MacArthur's commentary on, uh, on the Sabbath. And he, is, he excerpted a, a short piece uh, from a commentary and so forth. Here's, here's what they were living under in Jesus' day. Uh, for example, traveling more than 3,000 feet from home was forbidden. But if one placed food at the 3,000-foot point before the Sabbath, that point would be considered home since there was food there, and you could go another 3,000 feet past where you put the food uh, down. Similarly, a piece of wood or a rope placed across the end of a narrow street or alley constituted a doorway. That could also be considered a point that you could go 3,000 feet beyond that. Now, this is where it gets good. There are also regulations about carrying items. Something lifted up in a public place could only be set down in a private place and vice versa. An object tossed into the air could be caught with the same hand, but if it were caught with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If a person had reached out to pick up food when the Sabbath began, the food had to be dropped. To bring the arm back while holding food would be to carry a burden on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig, though something weighing half as much could be carried two times. A tailor could not carry his needle, a scribe his pen, or a student his books. Only enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet could be carried. That's not much ink, is it? A letter could not be sent not even with, not with a non-Jew. Clothes could not be examined or shaken out before being put on because an insect might be killed in the process, which would be work. No fire could be lit or put out. Cold water could be poured into warm water, but not warm into cold. An egg could not be cooked, not even by placing it in hot sand during the summer. Nothing could be sold or bought. Bathing was forbidden lest water be spilled on the floor and wash it. Moving a chair was not allowed since it might make a rut in a dirt floor which was too much like plowing. That's a pretty, that's a pretty dusty floor, isn't it? Women were forbidden to look in a mirror since if they saw a white hair, they might be tempted to pluck it out. Now, ladies, let me tell you something. Whatever you think about Christians and the Sabbath, Look in the mirror before you come to North Clay, if you would, and take appropriate steps. But isn't that crazy? But here's the thing. If you can make enough rules, then you eventually make the rules to the point that at least you think you're obeying them, and therefore you can justify yourself in your own heart and mind. But trust me, you will never justify yourself before holy God on the basis of your obeying of ever have any rules you want to create. But that was the system that was in place in Jesus' days, and the Pharisees were oppressing the people with all of their legislation, and that's why Jesus, when he pronounced these woes on the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, says you're tying up these incredible burdens on people's back. And I think when Jesus says, come unto me all you weary laden, and I will give you rest, I think he has in mind all of this junk that the Pharisees had placed on the people that they couldn't do and the people couldn't do, and they were oppressed by the people who were supposed to be leading them towards being in a right relationship with God. 
And so that's why Jesus said to them that you travel over land and sea, and when you actually have a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as they were before. That's why Jesus said those that are, that are drinking the old wine can't drink the new wine. They have no appreciation for the new things of God, for the, for the freedom that comes in Christ Jesus. And so they are indicting these disciples for the gathering of grain. And in fact, it shows what? They don't ultimately understand the Word of God. It's, it's fascinating to me how many people want to debate what the Bible teaches about anything. At the end of the day, you know what? They don't know what the Bible says, and they don't know what it means. And these religious leaders were in the same position. They didn't know what the Bible said nor what it means, but they had projected uh, their own legalistic and self-righteous agenda on the Word of God. And so Jesus appeals to David there. And an incident in David's life when he's fleeing Saul, recorded in uh, 1 Samuel, I think it is, chapter 21, where he goes to the, the, ta uh, the uh, tabernacle and he's starving and the priest allows him to eat what the, what's called the bread of the presence. Why? Because it was an act of compassion on a man that was hungry. Okay, And so Jesus is, says this, that the Son of Man, and here's what really would have ticked them off. The Son of Man is what? The Lord of the Sabbath. Now what has Luke demonstrated for us? That Jesus came to proclaim the gospel and he had authority over the demons, over disease, over death, all of these things. And what does Jesus do? He says, I have authority to establish what appropriate religious practice is. That's pretty much the same thing as what he said to the man, the paralytic on the mat. Son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees, who can forgive sins but God? What is Jesus saying? I have the power to forgive sins, therefore I'm God. Okay? Who can establish religious rituals and protocol? It's God. God established how the people of God in the Old Testament were to approach him. And Jesus says what? I have the right to say what goes and comes on the Sabbath. So it's another statement of his authority and power, therefore of his deity. Okay, So Jesus, and, and remember this, sometimes we think Jesus got swept up. Jesus is controlling the accelerator on what he says to people and how they're going to perceive him, and he is, he is moving himself along according to God's timetable that will place him on the cross at just the appropriate time, okay? So he speaks sometimes in veiled terms. He speaks in illustrations so that uh, some people don't get it, and he says exactly, he says, listen, I speak to you that way so you will get it, and they don't, okay? That's the point, that when the Spirit of God gives you understanding, you can understand it, but those outside will not get it. Well, let's look at this final section very, very quickly. Verse 6, again, on another Sabbath, Jesus is teaching, preaching in the synagogue. A man comes in with, a, with his right hand that's withered. And guess what? They're watching. They're watching. The Pharisees are watching. They're there. What are they there for? They're not there to hear the truth. They're out to see if they can entrap Jesus and 
halt him, stop him in the tracks. Why? Because they feel threatened by his presence, threatened by his power, and certainly threatened by his message. And so they watch and they wait. And look at verse 8. Now, Jesus could have done this. He's preaching and teaching. The guy comes in with the withered hand, and he could have slipped back there and said, Hey, buddy, meet me in my office at the church. I'll fix that for you. I don't, you know, the, the Pharisees, they'll be upset if I do anything. We don't want to cause any problem here, okay? So you just meet me back there. What did he do? Hey, come right here. Come right here. I know what they're thinking, okay? I mean, he could have avoided conflict on that day. You know, some people live with it. And I, I, people think sometimes I like conflict. I do not, okay? I'd rather you just agree with me and be right, okay? If you'll do that, we'll have no conflict. But I don't like conflict. But sometimes people think Jesus, meek and mild, all he did was ever make peace or what? No. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. I came to bring a sword. I came to set families apart. Why? Because the truth will do that. It will divide people. And so what does he do? He calls the guy up there and says, okay, for all uh, to see. The guy comes up there and he asks a question. Guys, you've been quizzing me. Now let me quiz you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or good do evil? Is it, is it a lawful thing on the Sabbath to say, here's a guy that's sick and hurting, and I'm going to just say, suck it up and get over it. Quit whining. What should he do? Of course, they don't really have an answer to that. And so, after looking around at them all, can you imagine, how would you like to have been one of those Pharisees? And that gaze from the Son of God catches your eyes. Guys, what would you have me do? What would you do? You're going to let this guy continue to suffer? I know what you'd do. I know what you'd do. But Jesus, to demonstrate two things, his power and also his compassion, but also to do what? To expose the profound and desperate darkness of the hearts of the Pharisees. How can you not celebrate when someone who has a great infirmity is healed? How can you be upset about somebody who can't use their right hand being able to use their right hand. I mean, it would be like somebody, you know, getting saved at the end of a church service and somebody complained that the bulletins got left in the seats or something. You know, I mean, some silliness such as that. But Jesus healed his hand. Tells him, stretch out your hand. He did, and it was restored. Now then, what, what would you think a normal human being would go, boy, that's great. This Jesus at least is unique. He has demonstrated some great power, but in a way that they would later demonstrate when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, you see this hand all gnarled up and everything, and all of a sudden, it's working. It's working like a normal hand. And what did the, how did the Pharisees respond to that? They got mad. They got mad. Now, I'm sure we could list a number of reasons as to why they're mad. But the main reason they're mad is Jesus is upsetting, upsetting the apple cart. He is threatening 
their place and position, which is ultimately one of the reasons this man is going to unsettle the entire nation and we're going to lose our place and our position and our authority. So Jesus didn't avoid conflict. In fact, he went towards it many times. And so we see in these three little snapshots, Jesus demonstrating both his compassion and his power and authority, but also his willingness, his willingness to expose the darkness of the hearts of those that would ultimately continue to oppose him in the face of overwhelming evidence. And again, it's been that way. They persecuted the prophets. They persecuted Jesus. They rejected the message of Jesus and the apostles. They'll reject the message of uh, Jesus' church in this day. But God will work through his message and his messenger and continue to do what he's done for thousands of years, namely save people by his grace, through faith, in his son. So Jesus, again, a man of compassion, but even in his compassion, he found himself right in the midst of conflict, a conflict that would do what? It would escalate according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge and place him on the cross at Calvary for our salvation. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your truth, for your word to us. We pray, God, that you would apply these things to our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would see, again, uh, Jesus high and lifted up, the one who has all authority and all power. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And we thank you uh, for what he did uh, in his life here on this earth. Uh, We thank you for what he has done Uh, on the cross at Calvary for the fact that he is at the right hand of the Father and he uh, continues uh, his intercession uh, for us, Lord. We pray that he has been appropriately communicated this day and, Lord, that your Spirit has applied these things to our hearts and minds. And, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.